morning. What's going on, Village Church? My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, and it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, you may have picked up on the fact that we're in the middle of a series we're calling We Are His. And each week we're going to be looking at a specific value here at the Village Church and then go to the scriptures to see how that value plays itself out in God's people. But it's all rooted in the fact that we are his. Here at the village, we say it this way. Village church exists to glorify God by growing and multiplying disciples who are delighting in Jesus, declaring the good news about Jesus, and displaying the life of Jesus because every village needs Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at specifically how we display the life of Jesus. We are his, so we display him. But pay close attention to the way that statement is constructed. It doesn't say we display him so we can belong to him. It says we belong to him so we display him. We are who we are because he is who he is. Our lives display Jesus because our relationship with Jesus. It means there's a visible aspect to your relationship with Christ. There's a visible aspect to your relationship with God. There is a connection between your relationship with God and your lifestyle. I'm saying this because in the context for the passage that we have this morning in 1 John, that's exactly the idea that was being challenged. John's main point in the passage we're looking at this morning is that although your relationship with God cannot be seen, the effect of that relationship can and should. I have this idea that I want to pitch to Hobby Lobby. I've told some of you guys about it. It's specifically for parents. And it's basically a leaderboard for your kids, okay? And it's ranked one, two, three, four in my case. And with that leaderboard will come plaques with each of your kids' names so that you can rank them, right? Um, so when, when my son does something wrong, I don't need to scold him or, or godly instruct him. I just go to the leaderboard and take his name down. <laughs> Problem solved. It would make things easier because they wouldn't have to wonder where they stood with us each day. They could look at the board and say, yes, number three. <laughs> There's some work to do. It would solve the problem of them wondering where they stood with us relationally, wherever they had doubt or whenever they had doubt, they could just check the board. My, my wife thinks this is a horrible idea because it is. Some of you guys thought I was serious. But the reason I'm pitching it to you is because the community John is writing to had just been rocked by a mass exodus. People were leaving the church because they started to believe some things that brought them out of sync with the gospel. They claimed to have attained some higher knowledge and through that higher knowledge had a deeper relational intimacy with God. And this caused the people that were left behind to start to doubt the things that they were taught, doubt the things that they believed, doubt the places where they stood in relationship to God. And they didn't have a leaderboard to check. There was no ranking they could see that, that, that showed them where they stood. So John writes this letter. And in this letter, he offers tests or proofs that they can use to confirm their standing before God. So John is approaching the same topic we are this morning, just from a different angle. So if we were to take the sermon title and reword it to, to how John is approaching it, instead of saying we are his, so we display him, we would say, if we are his, we will display him. And this sets, up us, sets us up for this morning with a series of tests 
that tell us if we are his, we will be characterized by some things. And these things will culminate in a life that displays Jesus. Said another way, we'll see three things. We'll see the foundation underneath a life that displays Jesus, the motivation behind a life that displays Jesus, and the expression of a life that displays Jesus. Let's get started just by reading the beginning of verse 1 again. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things so that, to you so that you may not sin. Right off the bat, John is laying his cards on the table and just tells us the purpose for his writing. He's writing these things, and his aim of them is that they may not sin. That's bold. And it's interesting that he says that here because of what he said three verses earlier in chapter 1. In, in chapter 1, John is dealing with a series of claims that the false teachers were making. And we can start to reconstruct some of those claims that they were making by how he's responding to them. It's formulaic. In chapter 1, each false claim begins with the phrase, if we say, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This gives us an idea of the types of things that were being said. Ultimately, they thought that their sin either didn't affect their relationship with God or that they had no sin in reality. It was gone completely. And John says, you're lying to yourself if you think either of those two things is true. You cannot have fellowship with God if you walk in darkness, and you will not reach sinless perfection on this side of eternity. John makes it clear, both the seriousness and the ongoing presence of a sin in the life of a believer. But then right after that, he tells us, that he's writing these things so that we may not sin. His goal is that we would be sinless. And John isn't alone in this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I don't think Jesus was exaggerating. This creates a bit of a tension. Because John, John in, in, in chapter 1 of 1 John says that if we say we have no sin, we lie. So, so which is it? Will there always be sin in my life? Or should I strive for perfection? And based off of this passage, I think John would say the answer to the, both of those questions is yes. Because John is saying that you will continue in sin on this side of heaven, but that doesn't mean that you need to be okay with that. Knowing that we will all struggle and sin, John is working to keep the readers of, his letters, of this letter from lowering their standard, saying that even though we know we'll struggle and fall as we run towards holiness, that in no way should diminish the, the veracity and the, the ferociousness with which we run. So the question for us is this. Do we strive to be perfect or have we settled for just being good enough? A while back, I was really into this very popular pastor, and I was listening to one of his sermons, and, and, and I was hearing him explain how embracing the gospel was coming to terms with the fact that we are sinners that just won't get much better. That's just who we are. And it was the grace found in the gospel that allowed us to rest in that and be okay with the fact that we we're not, we're not going to get much better. And honestly, it was a refreshing take on grace. 
refreshing up until he left his wife for another woman. And it illustrates why we can't resign ourselves to the presence of sin. You can't keep it contained. It has to be sought out and destroyed. Christ didn't die, for, die to free us from sin so that we can surrender ourselves to it. And so our aspirations, like John's, are for something better than just getting by. And I think this is why he addresses them the way he does. He calls them little children. And I think parents of little children know the feeling of wanting more for them than they want for themselves. Whenever we're in the car and I ask my kids, what do they want for lunch? My son yells from the back, McDonald's. And I pull the car over. And I said, are you serious? <laughs> Son, all the restaurants the light touches are yours, right? There are so many options that you can choose from, and you want McDonald's? Hopefully I just didn't offend someone that really loves McDonald's. But to illustrate the point that, that sometimes we can settle into the complacency of our lifestyles that are filled with sin. This pushes back against the type of talk that we have in our heads. I struggle with anger, and that's just who I am. I struggle with lust, and that's just who I am. I struggle with greed or jealousy or envy, and that's just who I am. John is saying that we shouldn't limp through life settling for less than what Christ brought, brought for us on our behalf. So like a parent to a child, he wants to lead us to pursue something better. Freedom from anger and lust and greed and jealousy. But from there, he moves on to a practical reality. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the entire world. Here's the reality that we're probably all familiar with. Christians that sincerely strive for, for holiness and sinlessness are going to often end up disappointed. And this answers the question, how do we live under a standard that we'll never meet? How do we deal with the grief and frustration we feel when our conduct and our aspirations don't line up? John doesn't deal with this reality of struggle with sin by lowering the standards. He doesn't move the goalposts. He doesn't try and make us feel better by saying it's not that big of a deal because it is a big deal. Sin is still serious. But in those moments when we struggle down the road of, of holiness, falling and failing in the process, to keep us from despair, he draws our attention to Jesus Christ, the righteous advocate, giving us a glimpse of what's happening in heaven. The essence of his defense being that he's the propitiation for our sin. Now, a lot of times when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, we talk about what that sacrifice did for us. It cleansed us. It showed us God's love. It frees us. And all of that is true. But the word propitiation highlights an aspect of the cross where we're not the focus. Propitiation is mainly about the effect that the death of the Son of God had on God himself. The word propitiation means to appease the wrath of an offended party. And in this case, it means to satisfy or appease the wrath of God that is due to us for our sin. Now, to be clear, here when John says Jesus is a propitiation for the sins of the entire world, he's not saying that everyone will be saved based off of his sacrifice. We're not preaching universalism. 
He's saying the whole world has only one sacrifice that could appease the wrath of God. The wrath of God will either fall on Jesus or will fall on us. There is no other substitute. Because we sinned, a sacrifice is necessary. And for years, at this point, I've explained it to the kids in class with an illustration. And I put up a stick figure like this, and I say, this is Bob. And I say, Bob left his house to go to the store. But as he left, he forgot to lock the door. There was someone in the bushes waiting for Bob to leave. It was the Hamburglar. As soon as Bob's out of sight, the Hamburglar goes into the house. And he steals Bob's PlayStation. He steals Bob's Star Wars Legos. He steals Bob's iPad. And just to add insult to injury, as he's leaving, he kicks Bob's dog. Just to make him the most vile character in the Village Kids universe. But then I say, hey, um, there's good news. They caught him. And he went before the judge. And the judge turned to the hamburger and he says, it's obvious you stole some of Bob's things. You're obviously guilty. But I'm a good judge. And even though you're guilty, I'm going to let you go free. And at that point, the kids lose their minds. That's not fair. What's not fair about it? He should punish him for what he did. I'm like, he's a good judge. But yeah, good judges punish guilty people. And I pause. And I ask, if good judges don't let guilty people go free, why do you think God can do that for us? He can't. If he did, he would be unjust. Propitiation tells us that God and his justice cannot just dismiss the righteous wrath he has on his sin, over sin. He has to pour it out. But he provides a substitute. Jesus stands in our place, absorbs the wrath that was due to me so that God can be both just and merciful. This is what our sin required. Make no mistake, sin is serious. And we see the seriousness of it on the cross. But it also underscores the grace found in Christ. Because it says we have a defense. That's present tense, meaning that right now, Jesus is in heaven now providing our defense. And every time I sin, he holds up his nail-pierced hands and says, I paid for that. This fundamentally changes how we relate to God. Because he's no longer standing over us as a judge ready to condemn. He's leaning down to us as a father offering mercy. This is where John wants your minds to go when you sin. He wants your mind to run to the cross. Because my defense has been and forevermore be that Jesus died on my behalf. The cross is the foundation for a life that displays Jesus. The gospel supplies us with both the motivation to strive for, 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 for perfection and the grace to cover us when we fall short. So with our feet Firmly planted in the grace found at the cross, we reach for perfection as long as we live. But it has to be mentioned that where there is no motivation to honestly deal and seriously deal with our sin, there may be no gospel foundation at all in the first place. Romans chapter 6, 1 and 2. Paul says, what shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The gospel doesn't make us okay with sin. It leads us to push for freedom from it. Now John moves on from talking about how Christians should approach their struggle with sin and starts to get more specific about how we display Christ and the motivation behind it. Let's pick it up, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Here John is presenting a spiritual law. Keeping God's commandments shows that we know God. Said another way, knowing God will always move us to keep his commandments. And when our lives display a pattern of unrepentant disobedience, it's an indication that we don't know God at all. But we need to note here that the word know isn't just talking about intellectual knowledge. It's not just talking about facts about God. He's talking about an intimate, relational, experiential knowledge of God. The way a man knows his wife. Said that this type of knowledge changes us. A a, a fight almost broke out in my community group a a couple weeks ago. Some Some controversial statements were made by me. In front of everyone, I said that pull-apart Twizzlers are the best kind of licorice. Everyone scoffed. So I doubled down, saying they must not know the Twizzlers of which I speak. Because if they did, they wouldn't say such things. So we did the only rational thing a community group could do. We bought nine different types of licorice, gave everyone scorecards, everyone ate them, and then ranked them. I was confident because I knew once they experienced with their taste buds, taste buds the goodness of pull-apart Twizzlers, their perspectives would inevitably change. I know it's a dumb illustration, but follow me for a minute because this is the same argument John is making. If you really knew the God of these commandments, if you really knew his wisdom and his justice, if you experienced and tasted his faithfulness and his mercy and love, you wouldn't see his commandments as chores. We would see them as good and beautiful and instructive and safe and want to keep them. That's why the psalmist says in 119, Oh, that my ways might be steadfast in keeping your statutes. This is what animates a life that displays Jesus. It's knowing God. To John, it's unthinkable that we would know God and not trust him enough to walk in his commands. So he links intimate relational knowledge with obedience. Where there is one, there will be another. But he adds something to our knowledge of God and obedience that it produces, and we see it in verse 5. Let's read it. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now this isn't quite what you would expect John to say. Verse 4 says that if anyone says they know him but don't keep his commandments, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. So in verse 5, you would expect him to say whoever keeps his word does have the truth in them. But that's, that's not what he says. There's, there's a change here. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. This begs two questions. The first question is whose love? God's love for us or our love for God. And I think John had in mind something that he already wrote. 
John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This tells me that the, the, the love that's in view here in verse 5 is our love for God. Now, the second question is, what does John mean when he says this love is perfected? Perfection here is carry, carries with it the idea of completion of a completed work. What we're seeing is that the full expression of our love for God isn't in emotional sentimentality. It's in obedience. If the cross is the foundation for a life that displays Jesus, then a loving knowledge of God is the motivation behind the life that displays Jesus. We want to obey God because we know God. We want to display him because we love him. We aren't perfect and we don't do this perfectly, but this text tells us where there are gaps in our obedience, there's a gap in our, in our knowledge of God. And where there is unrepentant, consistent disobedience, there is no knowledge and love of God at all. Next, John gets really specific with the obedience and, and with the commands to obedience. Verse 6, let's read it again. He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, it, it, it seems like these three verses are connected. Verse 5, verse 6, and 7, they're all connected. And what John is doing here is narrowing the focus to a particular thing seen in the life of Jesus that we should imitate. If we belong to Christ, we ought to walk in the same way he walked. The word ought here isn't used in the same way I would say I ought to get my oil change or I ought to pay my taxes. This implies that we should, but we don't have to. The text uses the word ought here in the same way we would say a fish ought to swim or a dog ought to bark. It's an anticipated behavior based off of something's nature so that those who belong to Jesus ought to behave like Jesus. It's in their nature to do so. We are his, so we display him. Now, this verse forms a bridge to verses 7 and 8 as things become to get more, start to become to get more and more focused. Verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Notice John says commandments plural in verse 4, but says commandment singular in verse 7. We've gone from talking about obedience to many commandments to talking about obedience to one. And this specific command embodies what it means to walk as Jesus walked. Verse 7 tells us it's not new. It's something that the original audience had from the beginning. They've heard all of this before. But then he says that at the same time, it is new. So based off of what John says in verse 10, and then later in 1 John 3.23, we see that the command that's in view here is the command to love our brothers. This isn't new or novel. It's what they've already been taught. But at the same time, it is new. It's new in its demonstration. Now, I think this is a direct reference to a command John heard directly from Jesus the night he was arrested. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus reiterates this command later when he says in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The command of love is not new. But in Jesus, 
it finds a new and deeper expression. That's what it means when he says that this command is true in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the command to love being fulfilled in a new way. It's a new expression of a love that goes as far as laying down his life for his friends. John tells us that this love is also true in Jesus' people. This self-sacrificial love is alive and well among God's people. John writes that this command is true in Jesus and true in us because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The imagery that he's constructing here is, is giving, us, um, giving us, starting with the fact that God is light. And the coming of Jesus is light starting to dawn on a world that's covered in darkness. Bringing with it a deep, self-sacrificing love that the world had never seen before. The light is pushing evil and darkness back. It was imparted to his people. And as we shine as lights in the darkness, it stands out because it's so drastically different than everything else in the world. This text illuminates the power of sincere Christian love. The picture is that every time I lay down my life for the sake of serving my brother, there's a flash of the light of Christ. And non-believers can see it. And that's why Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if the cross is the foundation for a life that displays Jesus and a, and a loving knowledge of God is the motivation behind the life that displays Jesus, then Christian love is the primary expression of a life that displays Jesus. What marks you out as belonging to God is the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not our politics. It's not our activism. What marks you as belonging to Jesus is that you're willing to lay down your comfort and your desire and even lay down yourself for the sake of the person sitting next to you. The chief characteristic of his people is love. Then this love forces us out of isolation. You cannot love Christians around you if you aren't actively involved in community and Christians around you. The stage this love is displayed is within Christian community. And if you aren't in Christian community, how are you loving like Jesus told you to? This love forces you out of being only about you so that you can love and serve others the way Jesus loved and served us. Sunday mornings are filled with people that are laying down their mornings to serve you. The kids' classes have 13 of them in the back doing it right now. People that said, sure, I would love to have a morning where I can slowly get up and and, and meander my way to church and get down and sit in the cushions and have people feed me food, but I'm going to lay all of that aside to serve these young souls that Jesus loves. I'm going to put that aside. What I want for my morning, I'm going to lay it aside so that someone else doesn't have to. And in this, we see glimpses of the love that Christ gave to his people at work within his people. From here, John teases out one more practical application for us this morning. Let's read it. Verses 9. 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The light of Christ and love are so intimately connected that if you say you're in light but are filled with hate, it shows that you're not in light at all. And if you love like Christ loves, it shows that you abide or remain in that light. 
But John then adds something to that. Not only do they abide in light, he says there's no cause for stumbling. I think the interpretation of this is pretty clear. If I'm in light, I won't stumble because I can see everything for what it is. The effect of walking in love and walking in light uh, is telling us that there's a protective element to it. That the more you walk in light and the more that you love others, it's protecting you from stumbling. Because loving others helps us see things for what they really are. Love embraces the otherwise restricting reality that everything doesn't revolve around me. My selfishness can blind me. Love for others opens my eyes to see things clearly. A couple weeks ago, I was putting my kids to bed. Every night, it's an unnecessarily long process of them forgetting their stuffed animals and then needing a glass of water and then having to go to the bathroom and then asking what we're doing the next day. And all of it can get really frustrating really fast. This particular night, I carried my son up to his room and I laid him in bed. And I was, as I was walking out of their room into freedom, I hear my son call. I hear him call me from his room. And I was exhausted from the day. I just wanted to lay down and get some rest. And I went back into the room already impatient, already angry, already frustrated. And I raised my voice and said, what do you want? And he looked at me and said, can you lay down with me and read me? My own self-absorption, my own selfishness blinded me from seeing anything outside of myself. And what I wanted in that moment, I couldn't see anything else for what it was. I didn't see him as my son. I saw him as a nuisance. I didn't see clearly in that moment. I think the point that John is making is that Christ's love expressed through us helps us see value in people. Value that because of our sin, we are blind from seeing on our own. This helps us serve because they have value. It helps us give because people have value. It helps us lay down the things that we think important for the sake of the things that actually are. The full expression of a life that displays Jesus' love. Self-sacrificing others-focused, clear-sighted love. And I think the good news statement for this morning is pretty simple. The love Jesus shows to us in the gospel becomes the love we show to him in obedience and the love we display to those around us. Our lives, our obedience, our love is just a copy It's a copy of what we've already seen and experienced in Christ. And you can't display it if you haven't experienced it. And John tells us if we've experienced it, we will display it. So let's pray for help to that end. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. um, I pray for us. I pray as we consider these things, as we hold on to the high standard you've called us to, that we pursue the holiness that you've called us to. I pray that we would, we would, we would find a motivation to pursue those things because Christ died so that we could reach for them, so that we could have them. I pray that, that's, that this would be our motivation, Father. And as we stretch and we reach for perfection, Father, I pray that we would rest in grace when we fail. I pray, Father, that we would experience 
a knowledge of you that, that just transcends all the petty things that we can occupy ourselves with and elevates our hearts and minds to things that are higher. I pray that we'd be, become so enamored by your love and your faithfulness and your wisdom that we would do all that we can to follow in your footsteps. I pray for us this morning, Father. I pray for help. We can't do this alone. We can't do this without you. So I pray that every step, Father, would be just motivated by Holy Spirit power as we walk down the path of holiness for your name's sake. In your son's name we pray. Amen.